Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my honor to have as my guest Dr. Joshua McNall from Oklahoma Wesleyan University. He's the Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology, Ambassador of Church Relations, and Director of the Honors Program. He's the author of several other books, including books on the big picture in the scriptures, a book on biblical narrative called the Long Short Story, and also an academic book on the atonement called Mosaic of Atonement. But today he's on the show to explore his latest book from InterVarsity Press, Perhaps Reclaiming the Space Between Doubt and Dogmatism. As listeners of my podcast know, I enjoy exploring, especially with theologians, issues of certainty and uncertainty in Christian faith, because it's such a, a critical space and so many people, especially young people now, are struggling with questions about the Christian faith because they've never been exposed to the real depth of the Christian tradition. So this is going to be a great conversation because as a professor at a Christian liberal arts college, Joshua knows very well the sort of questions that emerging generations are bringing. And this book is a excellent resource. You're going to enjoy the conversation, so let's jump right into it now. Hey, Josh, welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Brian, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're here to talk about your book, perhaps, but could you give a little background for everybody that's listening? I'm, I'm particularly interested in just uh, your pilgrimage, your a little bit some key moments in your spiritual journey that led you to become a professor and now the author of uh, this, of perhaps. Yeah, well, I'll give you the short version. Uh, my name is Josh McNall. I'm a professor at Oklahoma Wesleyan University in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, but uh, I grew up in Kansas, just south of Topeka, Kansas, kind of out in the country. My dad is a pastor in, in a small kind of uh, Wesleyan church there. And um, so I came to faith, probably like a lot of pastor's kids at a, kind of a young age, grew up in the church and... Um, probably about towards the end of high school, began to ask questions about, well, what am I going to, you know, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do for a major? And began to feel called to ministry. And uh, I came to actually the place where I work right now, Oklahoma Wesleyan, as a college student and um, kind of was clarified in my call there that uh, I really felt a little bit more drawn toward academic ministry as a professor uh, than just exclusively in the local church, although I serve in the local church as well. Uh, met my wife here at Oklahoma Wesleyan, and um, uh, after that, I went to Gordon Conwell Seminary out on the East Coast and did a degree in theology there, and then uh, got married and served in a local church, a Wesleyan church plant in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area. Um, doing kind of worship arts and discipleship and a little bit of preaching, things like that. So uh, part of my pilgrimage it has been kind of finding where my gifts align with uh, God's call on my life and, and the needs of the church. And I've really enjoyed uh, getting to write and to think and to teach, but also getting to preach and, and even be involved with music and stuff like that, which was my primary uh, pastoral job, you know, early on until I uh, came on board here at the university as a professor and uh, did my PhD over in England in, in theology at the University of Manchester. And um, we've got four kids now, so they keep us busy and uh, learning lots about them and about ourselves and probably about God in the process uh, as well. But that's just kind of a little snapshot of, of my path from, you know, being a youngster to to today. Yeah. And you have this new book coming out, perhaps reclaiming the space between doubt and dogmatism. I, I love the word perhaps for various reasons. And I really like the title. So you're going where angels fear to tread these days trying to find a space between uh, what's not typical today, which is going to some either being a zero or 10 on something, and there's no middle space. So frame out a little bit. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about your writing style is you bring a lot of not just theology to this, but you have, you know, you, you, you have like a dialogue with, um, you talk about students, you have literature, you have all these different types of things. So give, give the backstory 
that's kind of inspired you to move into this uh, space between say doubt and dogmatism and I'll unpack both of those words a little bit. Yeah. Well, one of the things the book is after is what sometimes is called the courageous middle uh, between the extremes. And I think a lot of us in our culture now feel like we're in some ways we're kind of been terrorized by the fringes on any number of different issues, uh, two really loud extremes on either side of us. And so the space that I'm talking about is this kind of sacred middle ground between a really crippling secular doubt and deconstruction on one side. And then on the other side, this sort of increasingly narrow or angry or strident religious dogmatism. Um, and in between those middle, in between those two extremes, I think is where most people actually live. Um, they don't have a kind of absolute epistemic certitude, but they deeply desire for there to be something more beyond just this physical world that we see, a transcendent source of meaning and truth and goodness and beauty. And so the book is, the title comes from a line from N.T. Wright in his big book on Paul. He says, sometimes believing in providence means learning how to say perhaps. And so I'm, I'm looking at that word as kind of a tool for theologians, but also just for regular Christians, for places in our life where we don't have certainty but we're kind of stretching out for God's truth and, and for meaning in this world. And that's, those are kind of the two extremes in that, that middle ground that uh, I'm interested in talking about. And when, and when we talk about certainty, um, we'd all love it. Right. And, uh, and, and so you, you, you teach at uh, a Christian university. So you work with a lot of young people. So I guess a lot of your folks are, what Gen Z now, and I don't know if it's a trail into the millennial, or whatever. And I know that I've read some of your work. And we're not trying to make stereotypes about um, generations because everybody's a little bit different. But what are you seeing now with younger people in terms of like what's their biggest questions ag against maybe traditional orthodoxy beyond like problem of evil type of things? Are you seeing specific areas where they're actually pushing back on? kind of orthodox positions because they, they just don't see that they can have certainty about those? Yeah, I was talking to somebody recently, and we were talking about, um, you know, students of ours or just friends of ours who are, have been in a season of doubt or deconstruction. And he used this phrase, he said, it's almost as if there's this shared Google Doc of doubt, <laughs> where all these folks basically are almost like working off a very similar template or document mm -hmm. that plots their trajectory from, in some cases, like a fairly traditional or conservative or evangelical uh, Christian upbringing to this season of doubt and deconstruction. And so to answer your question, like in, in many cases, it's yes, the problem of evil was definitely one that's been brought up even just to me recently from a, a, a pastor friend that I talked to, you know, if God is good, how in the world can he allow you know, evil that it's not just one person hurting another, but evil that's, you know, we're born into it's the, the destruction within the natural order and pain and suffering. So I think that's there. But in many cases, for my students and my former students, um, it's the people I talk to, that journey towards a kind of secular doubt is it starts with a form of church hurt, uh, just a really tough experience within um, a church, in some cases, a really kind of traditional conservative church that maybe even verges a little bit towards the extreme of what I call dogmatism. Um, and that could be any number of things. It could be abuse. It could be um, you know, just a kind of hypocrisy that goes beyond just the sort of rank and file hypocrisy that we think we're all fallen people, right? Um, sort of seeing behind the curtain in, in different ways. So in many cases, beyond just like the problem of evil or, or things like that, it seems to be spurred on by a real painful experience within the church that has left some scar tissue for them, whether that's, like I said, a sort of abusive leadership or celebrity culture or whatever. And then a second thing I'm noticing in addition to that is a real just disillusionment with the hyper-partisan mentality that pervades 
many aspects of evangelicalism, really mm-hmm. the, the wedding together of partisan politics and Christianity uh, to the extent that they just know that, man, whatever, whatever Jesus is about, it can't be that, you know, uh, that that's um, a kind of corrupting of the gospel. So those are two things that I've noticed um, in this journey of doubt or deconstruction, a deep hurt within the church, uh, a kind of partisanship, uh, of course, the problem of evils there. But those are some of the common themes that I've, if we're going to work off this kind of shared Google Doc, so to speak. Yeah, I like that shared Google Doc, because I've noticed, I mean, there's entire ministries now that are helping people deconstruct. Um, I mean, I had, I saw, I read some of your blog posts, and, you know, and you even, you know, it was kind of funny, you're you're talking about marketing, so you didn't want to just tell your own book. So you mentioned, um, what's his name, Uh, AJ Swoboda has a recent book that came out after that. I I had him on the podcast um, it's been a while now, but we, I read his book also. And, you know, and, and he had, he's had, he's in a college like you are. And so it's almost like the cool thing to do is deconstruct. Mm-hmm. I mean, folks that listen to my podcast know that I've had, even as uh, you know, in my, in my own, I'm 52 now, but I, I had a really difficult phase of my life in my forties um, where again, um, kind of, I, went, I didn't really deconstruct, but I, I, just as a professor, just knowing the Psalms, the Psalms mm-hmm. have all these deconstructing paradigms where you're essentially, yeah. the point of that isn't to deconstruct as though you turn into nothing. It's to actually rebound and, you know, mm-hmm. it's like to build a, build a stronger faith. But so what do you think from speaking to pastors and, you know, you have this local church experience and, and you're at a, at a Christian college. Um, mm-hmm. What have we missed as pastors? Again, we can always point to the big churches and point fingers, but I mean, you know, a lot of the folks are, most people go to normal sized churches and we have pastors that aren't celebrities, just people like us that are doing the best we can preaching. So what do you wish wish pastors knew about doubt and dogmatism so that they could give people spiritual muscles that allows them to actually get through both the winters of life Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the summers of life? I think one thing that good pastors do well is they normalize a willingness to to talk about, honestly talk about our struggles in the faith, which is going to involve uncertainty. It's going to involve questions that don't have answers right now. And so I think what one of the things that good pastors do, and one of the things the Psalms do really well, far more than we have a comfort level for in some cases, is voicing our honest um, complaints and questions toward God. And I think there's more of a willingness for that within the Jewish tradition than there is certainly within American Christianity or American evangelicalism to just be honest with God. And so I think good pastors normalize that kind of honesty uh, in a way that people then will approach the pastor because they feel like it's a safe person to be honest with, you know? And so I think, I think that's important that for churches to not stigmatize doubt, to not demonize it. I, I also think it's important not to valorize it. You know, this book that I've written is not one of those, you know, whatever it is, $275 kits to deconstruct your faith. Um, I, I believe in the gospel and I have, kind of confidence and assurance in, in Christ. But uh, between those two extremes of the kind of demonizing and valorizing, again, I think is where most people live. And so one of the things I say in the book is that few things are more distressing to people who are going through seasons of doubt than to be surrounded by people who seem just blissfully certain. Yeah, yeah. You feel alone and you feel like, well, I can't talk about it because apparently I'm the only one here who is, is feeling this way. And so as much as the church can um, do away with that mentality that we can't talk about our, our, our questions, our doubts, or be honest about it, I think that'll be a good thing. Now, that's, I think that's, that's really helpful. And, I, and one of the things I loved about your book is, I mean, you give people resources. You have a dialogue with the Christian tradition. You talk a lot about biblical passages with doubt. And let's just stay there or park there just for a second. Um, When you think about the Bible and doubt, I mean, you do 
a lot with the scriptures. That's one of the things I appreciate about you as a theologian that you, you do a lot with the Bible. You know, that's the old uh, playback between Bible scholars and theologians, but I think you do a fantastic job handling the text and even your other works um, you know, right in the, uh, you know, I love your other book too. And like we already talked about before, and I'll, I'll put all your books in the show notes and stuff, but what, what is your, if like, if I'm coming to you and I'm a student and I'm having real doubts and I just feel like I, I just can't be a Christian anymore because, you know, I just lay out, you know, the Google docs, I'm reading you the Google doc and, What's what's kind of a passage that you use maybe pastorally first to say, hey, you know what? Um, there's characters in the Bible that literally voiced real doubts. So you have like a favorite that you go to? Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably you know so much a favorite that it's the one that everybody mentions. But you know, you have the the man who comes to Jesus and he's coming on behalf of his child and you know asked if Jesus can can heal his child and Jesus asks him to if he believes and he says well I do believe help my unbelief you know and so whatever faith is right it can't be the complete absence of or it can't be that like it has to be this like 100% certitude the kind of certainty that we have in sort of logical syllogisms or you know math equations if you're good at math at least which i'm not uh, what, whatever it is it can't be that because here's a guy who is honest with jesus about his lack of belief that simultaneously coexists with his belief and jesus doesn't tell this guy like sorry you know you got to be 100 percent. he reaches out in love and heals this child but also moves this man toward a place of assurance by virtue of that miracle and it doesn't require this 100 percent um certitude and so that's a that's a very common passage that you'll hear pastors and, and probably bible scholars and theologians point to but i think it's an important one and i i deal with kind of several doubt passages in the the new testament specifically and one of the things i'm trying to do is to just say well in our English translations, when we see these passages that speak of, quote, doubt, well, what do they mean? You know, because uh, there might be different assumptions and definitions that we're working with when we speak of doubt. Um, and so I try to unpack that. And one of the things I argue is that in many cases, what the Bible means when it speaks of doubt is a kind of divided soul or divided heart, divided allegiances, Um or an attempt to sort of just eternally sit on the fence without committing ourselves to God or to, to Christ as King. And that's something that's a little bit different than I think we typically mean in the modern Western English speaking world when we think of doubt as just like, well, it's a lack of certainty. That's uh, a, that's a different definition um, than, than I think the scriptures are normally uh, working with when they, they use words that we translate as doubt. I just love what you said. And I can hear Wesleyanism coming through you when you say that I almost, I want to start talking about entire sanctification now, because I think when you talk about divided loyalty, so maybe I'll end with a question about that, if you're comfortable with that, but sure. yeah, I really liked, um, I, re I really like what you just said. So how, how do you, what's a healthy amount of doubt for somebody that's really dogmatic to have? And then what's some dogmatism that somebody that doubts have? Cause that's your space, right? And again, you know, solve all of our problems with that one, right? Cause it's, it's, yeah. cause that middle ground involves being what neither, let's see, you don't want to, let's see, you don't want to be, uh, is it to be uncertainly certain and certainly uncertain? Is that the middle? <laughs> yeah, I think what I would speak of the middle and again, a lot of people would probably place faith between doubt and dogmatism, right? Yeah. And there's yeah. plenty, plenty that could be said there. Faith or pistis has this kind of allegiance or this um, trust, um, believing allegiance or something like that. When I speak of the middle ground of perhaps, I'm focusing a little bit more on the place of the imagination and the ability to say, okay, well, maybe I don't have certainty, but what if this is the case and if i can sort of ask what if in a constructive way rather than just sort of rank speculation we you know, to call somebody's work theology speculative is never a compliment you know uh, and so i'm actually pushing back against that in this book to say well maybe there is a place for speculation within theology or within the christian life that can help us 
be more faithful people when we lack certitude. And so that's that's one piece on the the middle ground, the the importance of the imagination and even the place of speculation between doubt and dogmatism. Um, I've talked a little bit about doubt, but maybe I could define dogmatism a little bit. Yeah, that's um, good. Yes, please. So I, uh, I basically define dogmatism in two ways. It's a matter of tone and it's a matter of emphasis. That's really helpful. Uh, and so for some of us, it's not so much what we believe, but it's the way we communicate it. It's the way we approach other people. It's like a posture of arrogant or aggressive combativeness. You know, so when I say the tone, it's this kind of tone of shrillness. Uh, it's like all trouble and no base. <laughs> or you might just say it's just, it's Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> It's social media that sort of amplifies the, the shrillest and the angriest voices. And so that's the first part of dogmatism in terms of the definition is this kind of tone of shrillness. Um, and the second part is what I would say as a posture of false certainty. And it's claiming certitude on issues where we actually probably don't have certainty. And we need to be a little bit more humble or more honest uh, about our lack of certitude. Um, and so those are the two parts of what I mean by dogmatism. I don't mean that we shouldn't have, you know, these dogmas of the faith, which are just like for in theology, there's like the bedrock beliefs of Christianity, like the deity of Christ or the trustworthiness of scripture, or, you know, so I'm not against dogma in that sense. Uh, in theology, we sometimes even call systematic theology dogmatics. Right, that's right. That's not what I'm talking about. It was a neutral word at one point. It's now become what you just said. It has that layer of shrillness to it and then beyond yeah. just the articulating the beliefs. Yeah. So what I'm talking about is those two things, that tone of shrillness and that posture of false certainty that can really alienate so many people in our communities, in our families. Uh, and I think we need to move away from that in, in our faith. When, and to say perhaps then, um, when's it appropriate to use your, um, your, your paradigm essentially? Like, cause, you know, cause to me, when, when I started reading your book and this, this is kind of a little bit of a more direct, kind of a harder question. So, um, but when I read it, you know, you, you, you talk about essentially, um, you know, there's certain things you wouldn't say perhaps about, like, for example, and, and I'm with you on this, um, like the resurrection of Jesus, that's not something that we perhaps about, right? But as a cynic looking in, you might say, well, you, if you're going to tell somebody they can't say to perhaps to some orthodox position, all you're doing is essentially setting up new rules but mm -hmm. and so, what, how do you answer that? Again, I don't, I, I don't yeah. mean to be hostile because I actually like your book, but that no, seems no. like a question about spacing. It's like, a, how does it not become a word game that I can say perhaps, but I can set the rules you and can. say, you, yeah, exactly. You... <laughs> yeah. So to clarify that point, I don't mean to say that people shouldn't or can't say perhaps about foundational beliefs of Christianity. I mean, if if they don't believe the resurrection or they have significant doubts about the resurrection, they should just say that they should be honest about it. And we should be welcoming of people who come to us with those questions. So when I say that I'm not saying perhaps about say the resurrection of Christ or that God is holy love in terms of his nature, you know, he is holy and he is loving. I'm simply saying that, that that's because of experiences I've had because of uh, my walk with Christ, that those are not questions that I am eternally sort of rehearsing or trying to arbitrate, you know, uh, because of, so that's, that's speaking of me. So I'm not meaning to say that other people who are wrestling with those questions can't wrestle with them or can't wrestle with them publicly. I'm simply saying that my goal is, is not to sort of continually be trying to deconstruct foundational beliefs. I don't think that's a very, deconstruction sometimes can be a really healthy process that people go through because certain things need to be deconstructed. 
And then in other cases, even when the thing itself, I don't think needs to be deconstructed, like let's say the resurrection of Christ, the experience of walking through that season can actually be beneficial because God uses it like a fire to refine us, just like he used the desert or the wilderness in the, the history of his people. So deconstruction, I think, can be, in certain instances, a positive process, um, but it's, it's no way to live sort of perpetually. It, it, it's not a healthy or a happy way. It, it, it's not a destination that one wants to kind of arrive at. And so that's what I would say to that. Um, when I'm speaking of, say, the resurrection or other things, I'm talking about where I'm at and that mm -hmm. I, I don't feel the need to continually uh, rehearse or deconstruct those things. And that's because of where I'm at in my walk with God. But I'm not saying that other people can't or can't be honest about their their questions, even on those really foundational issues. Now, I love you how you use what if questions too, because I mean, questions like that, just like you said, it opens up the imagination. So I'm wondering, you can have, if you're deconstructing, you could basically have an intellectual problem that needs to be solved, or you could have a significant heart problem, even if you still believe, but you just don't feel it on the inside. So what role does religious experience play even in your thinking about these things? Because presumably, if I have a heart, you know, my heart strangely warmed experience, even if things suddenly don't make any sense, I can pull back on that. Now we have all these theologians that, you know, like, you know, Kierkegaard, some of those folks are existential philosophy, did some of that kind of stuff. But what, where, what role does religious experience play in your thinking about this topic? Yeah, I think it's crucial. And I think in some cases, what apologetics has failed at is it's been continually providing rational answers to experiential questions or problems good. and no matter how much information you dump in someone's head if if it's not really at its root an intellectual critique or problem then all of that data isn't really going to help um it's sort of like somebody who's struggling in a certain area of their psyche and you're just kind of machine gunning passages from the dsm-5 at them it's probably, probably going to make them feel worse at the end of the day um and so you talk about the role of experience, I think both the intellect is important and, and thinking clearly and articulating things clearly is, is very important. I'm not trying to dismiss that, mm -mm, no. but there needs to be more of a place in our apologetics and in our discipleship, I think, for the realm of experience. A lot of the problems I'm hearing from students or former stu students are not like intellectual critiques of Christianity their experiential um, critiques or problems. And uh, I think, you know, I, this is not unique to me. I'm not sure who says this, but, you know, we, we tend to enlist our reason to back up conclusions that we reached with our guts. And, and so reason comes in after the fact and we, we end up, we, but we're kind of being driven by our, our gut, our desires, or our experiences. And so I think we have to talk about both. And I think Jesus deals with, with both uh, when he is teaching, but also healing and comforting and being present with people. So I think you need both kind of a concern for the experience and the person as a whole and not just sort of the intellectual arguments. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And, you know, I loved um, one of my favorite books is Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. And, and it just if you just look at your preface, I think it's I think it's the very first line of the preface, or I think yeah. if, I, if my memory yeah. serves me right. And so you, you have literature in your book and and that's so powerful because, you don't your book isn't standard apologetics. Instead, it's it's stepping back and you bring different resources. So what role does, say, fiction? I mean, I don't know a whole lot about Joseph Conrad's uh, faith commitments, or or I think he was probably even an atheist, I would just yeah. guess, from reading, <laughs> reading Heart of Darkness, but it's very penetrating and really powerful. So what yeah. role does literature have in opening up the imagination and helping us to move into that space between these extremes that you're talking about? Yeah, I one of my I love reading and I love fiction, 
And I actually, in this book, one of the kind of maybe unique or some, some people might say odd things about it is that there's actually a fictional narrative that weaves through the book about yeah, a young I lady. I love that part. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that too. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I really like that. Oh, you're that. fine. Yeah. It's about a young girl who goes off to college, a really conservative Christian college. You might call it maybe more of like a fundamentalist Christian college and begins to lose her faith in that experience. And it's not simply a deconstruction story. There's there's hope sort of shot through, but it's also not one of these cliched sort of God is not dead. Everybody gets saved in the end, kind of right, right. smiling into the camera, freeze-framed uh, kind of endings either. So there's that fictional narrative. And the reason for that, I think, is that you know form needs to match content. If we're talking about the imagination and if we're talking about the polarized extremes in our culture where people find themselves just torn between the two, then the form needs to match the content. We need to engage the imagination and we need to engage um, beauty and not just intellect and, and reason. And so uh, in addition to that fictional narrative of the young lady named Eliza, who's kind of the protagonist there, uh, I've enjoyed pulling in a lot of fiction references to fiction in the nonfiction chapters. So you mentioned, you know, Heart of Darkness, but also, uh, you know, Cormac McCarthy and Marilyn Robinson and Flannery O'Connor and uh, John Steinbeck. And not all of those are quote unquote Christian authors, but I've always, you know, when, when Christ talks about, you know, if, if you don't, praise me, even the rocks will cry out. I, I think sometimes the rocks that the church needs to listen to that have been crying out are voices like Cormac McCarthy or or Joseph Conrad who have things to teach us, albeit in a fairly kind of hard or stony <laughs> idiom. And, uh, and so I think literature and art, more broadly speaking, um, can be this sort of to quote Karen Swallow Pryor, who I quote in one of the epigraphs, this sort of backwoods path that's, yeah, it's filled with brambles and thorns and thistles, but this backwoods path to lead us back to God by virtue of how they point to beauty and truth. And I think in so doing, even if they don't know it, they're actually pointing to Christ, who is beauty and truth um, incarnate. And so there's a lot of literature in the book and it's, it's to try to counter a little bit, a trend that I mentioned previously, that sometimes our apologetics have been a little too focused on uh, rational analysis and a little short on the aesthetic um, and the, the realm of beauty. And did you get a sense of that? Like, I think your background's interesting. Um, the very fact that you were like a worship pastor um, and did that sort of work. And you know, even mentioned that you're not good at math. And I think about myself and I was going to be an engineer. I'm really good at math. So at some level, one of the things I always tell students is like, the Bible's not math. If you want math, go study mathematics. If you, <laughs> if you want to study God, there's going to be something less than two plus two equals four. It might be two plus yeah. two equals a million with God because God can do cool stuff. So mm -hmm. how do you think your background sort of uniquely positions you to make these really outstanding intellectual arguments and we have a fictional narrative through a book about theology. I think that I just think that's so cool. So, did, did, did you learn that from your? Do you think your worship arts background brought you into it, or um, can you say I a little don't bit know. about that? I think you know we're all different, of course. And yeah, I've known a lot of um, a lot of people who are really great communicators, um, either as say preachers or writers. And I'm not necessarily you know saying this is me, but that that have a background in music uh, and the arts. And that sometimes there is this sort of carryover from that background in the arts or even in music to the kind of aesthetic sensibilities that help when it comes time to communicate the gospel or in, in terms of literature and, and things like that, that the kind of artistic temperament or personality has a certain window on reality that the church needs, just as, you know, the personality that's incredibly logical and, you know, analytical also has a certain window on truth that the church needs. And so I don't think it's that one is better than the other. But if I had to say, in some cases, um, 
especially evangelicalism, we we need artists and sages and poets and, and not just sort of CEOs and marketers and, and things like that. So I, if there is a connection, I think it is in that kind of artistic temperament that, that can carry over to certain areas in the church. Yeah, I really love that. I mean, the more I've thought about it as I read your book, and I guess I'd missed the background piece about the worship arts. I I, I just think, because um, I like music too. I mean, uh, I like play guitar and stuff. And, you know, when you think about music and perhaps, I mean, you know, you could play every time you do a worship song, I mean, you know how to play it, but I mean, you could play it faster than you did the last time. You could do the chorus three times instead of two times. I mean, there's so much improvisation within music. And it seems like that is the metaphor at some level for this middle ground, because I'm not going to tell you, oh my gosh, you just played that song incorrectly because I heard you miss a chord and uh, there was a drum solo and on the real record there, you know, there isn't a drum solo or something. So I think that actually is a really helpful model that uh, I think that would, uh, I might have to think about that a little bit more. So thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, the the whole idea of improvisation. Yeah. Um, let's just talk about holiness just for a minute. I mean, you're, sure. you're, at, a, you're at a Wesleyan um, uh, university and I teach at Asbury Seminary. And, you know, at some level, you know, I see myself at end of the day as, as a holiness preacher um, for the 21st century. And so I want, I want people to have their hearts strangely warm and just be committed to essentially an eternity of growing in love and, and experiencing mm -hmm. the God of, uh, of holy love. But doubt can be the barrier to that sometimes, and so can dogmatism. So mm -hmm. we're, how do you see perhaps fitting in as, as we try to articulate this wonderful Wesleyan core experience of being, you know, our heart full of love, mm -hmm. um, both <laughs> entirely even. So have, have you yeah. thought about that a little bit? And can you say, talk, give yeah. just reflect I mean, I on a little bit? I think in some in some cases and i'm a part of the holiness tradition so i'm not throwing stones at it yeah, but in yeah. some cases the holiness tradition became kind of synonymous with a kind of legalism yeah, yeah. or in other cases a kind of dogmatism um but i just actually this is a kind of weird coincidence i just opened my mail before we started the podcast and i just preached last weekend in wisconsin and uh I got a letter and sometimes as a professor, you get strange letters, you know, people are predicting the, the end of the world. They're all <laughs> they, have, they have it all figured out and they want to share their book yeah, with you. Yeah, it's yeah, usually yeah. different colors of font mixed together. I don't know why that is, but, um, but <laughs> this was a letter from a guy and he said, Hey, I was this there this past Sunday. I've not heard a message on holiness in decades. Wow. Thank you for preaching on that. And the passage I preached on the title of my message was offensive holiness. And I, I made a big deal about it. It matters how you pronounce that word. Uh, offensive. I really like that. Yeah. Versus offensive. And the passage I preached on was the text where the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years touches the, the hem of Jesus's garment. And um, the point that I made is that, you know, in, in their tradition, but also in the Jewish tradition all throughout history, there's always been this, this understanding that holiness is maintained by separation to be set apart. And that's why you can't take ritual impurity and bring it into a holy place. You know, that's wouldn't show reverence for the holy. And there's an important truth there. The holiness is maintained by separation in certain cases. And some of us, we need to separate ourselves from environments that are causing us to sort of get sick, spiritually speaking. But the thing that stands out about that passage to me is that when this woman with this ritual impurity touches Jesus, it's not that Jesus becomes impure. It's that the power of his holiness goes on the offensive. It's good. And it, and it flows the other direction. And instead of her contaminating him, the source of her impurity is actually healed because he has this holiness that isn't just offensive, but rather offensive. It goes out into the world that's full of impurities and, and brings healing um, to them. And so when I talk about holiness, that's often what I talk about is this kind of an offensive holiness that brings hope and healing into the midst of a, a broken world and not merely a kind of holiness that is a kind of segregation-based holiness where we just focused exclusively on being separate um, from everything. 
um, everything else around us. So um, that's one thought I've had on holiness and just because I preached on it last weekend and got a letter about it today. But I think the message of holiness is needed in our culture and it allows us to hold together, I think, the love of God and the justice of God, you know, with, with the mercy of God. And, and so I think if we in Wesleyan circles and holiness circles can, can get that right, then we can have something to offer, not just other Christian traditions, but, uh, you know, the world, the world at large. I love that, Josh, just keep preaching there. On, I love that. And I loved even the wordplay. In a sense, I'm just, uh, I'm just seeing more of your mind in the way this this book is really good, folks, perhaps reclaiming the space between doubt and dogmatism. And you just saw, you just illustrated kind of this dialectical approach that lets you float just with a word like offensive. I love it. Uh, um, I like putting, um, I like the to write up on the board. Uh, I won't do it since this is going to be on audio, but I, t- I write the word God is now here but I collapse it all together and it could be read God is nowhere or it could be read God is now here. And then it just play around like, what do you, what's the first thing you see just as an example of these dialectics and that offensive of uh, versus being offensive. I mean, that's just, I love that. And thanks for the reminder that holiness is missional and that our holiness is more dangerous to the world than the world is to us. If we open ourselves up to, to God's grace. Um, what's next for you? I mean, it perhaps comes out, um, I think it comes out on the September 21st, so it's going to be available by the time people, folks are listening to this, InterVarsity, I'll put links to the show. It's a great book. I definitely recommend it uh, to, to listeners. It's good for everybody, too. It does. There's some uh, the, there's theology in this book, but it, it's accessible, and this would be a great book for pastors and any lay people that are listening that really want to take a deep dive in these kind of questions. What, what, what's next for you, Josh? Where would you like to be like in five years as a scholar or as a pastor, or even as a Christian, I guess? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what's next in one sense. Um, I, I'm really increasingly, I'm passionate about being rooted in a place and uh, mm. to putting down roots and so that you can have the kind of generational influence and relationships and, and, connections. And so in terms of what's next, of course, who knows what's next? Uh, I'm, I'm passionate about continuing to write and to teach. Um, and uh, I've got a book coming out through Seedbed, uh, which who knows when it'll actually come out. I just turned in the manuscript, but it's going to be on the doctrine of atonement. Um, and I had a book, an academic book out through Zondervan Academic about a year, little over maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago called The Mosaic of Atonement. But my next book through Seedbed, which probably come out in 2022, is tentatively titled How Jesus Saves. And That's the awesome. subtitle is going to be um, Atonement for Ordinary People. Uh, basically, trying to answer that question, how does Jesus save us? But not in like really academic jargony terms, but in really accessible, practical um, ways for the church. And so I, I really like going back and forth between kind of the academic and this, the book we're talking about perhaps is kind of lightly academic, you know, yeah. it has footnotes, but it's not trying to be super, super complex. I like going back and forth between kind of the academic and the really pastoral um, accessible stuff. And I feel like that's kind of where my calling is, regardless of where I'm at, that that's going to be um, what I'm up to. Well, that's right in my heart. So just thank you for doing that. I mean, it's not, uh, uh, it's not always easy to be an academic and still write accessible books, but you're a very good writer. And I'm just grateful that uh, you're getting things out to, to folks. What about um, you kind of personally, how do you, um, you know, I mean, I'm not asking you to be super personal, but just, um, how do you actually order your life? Do you like have a rule of life or a rhythm of life? What keeps you really grounded and fuels your faith so that you can show up and be the, you know, the person that uh, God's called you to be, Josh? Yeah. Well, my wife would say I'm a creature of routines. Uh, probably all of us have our routines, but I'm especially a creature of, of routines and they really keep me um, regulated and sort of like grounded and, and um, healthy, I think in a lot of ways. So I don't have a strict sort of rule of life, but for me, for the longest time, you know, I, I go to bed really early. I'm kind of like a you know, 39 year old acting like a, I don't know, 89 year old, but, uh, and then I get up really early, uh, because of the early bedtime, that's not so hard. And I, I have a good block of time in the morning, every morning, um, at least on weekdays for time in the scriptures and, uh, in prayer. 
I vary that. Sometimes I just got a, a copy of the um, Book of Common Prayer, I think like the 1619 edition with the little bit older English. And I've been working through that, some of the morning prayers. And um, But regardless of what specific thing I'm doing at the time, it'll always involve some time in the scriptures, some time in prayer, and then some time reading um, something in the realm of theology or biblical studies. Uh, right now I'm reading John Barclay's book on Paul and the gift. So mm. about all about grace. Um, and then in the evenings, after we put the kids down, our kids are little, so they go down pretty early. I always read some fiction in the evening. And so right now I'm reading Cormac McCarthy, um, The Crossing. Mm. And I try to tend a little bit more toward what we would call like kind of classics. It's not necessarily really old classics, but um, I think that really helps me to preach and to write and to teach because it gives me an endless stockpile of metaphors and images and stories and quotes uh, in for, for preaching and teaching. And so um, that's, that's kind of my routine. Obviously I'm doing a lot of stuff during the day, teaching classes and working on sermons. And um, one of my big things that doesn't sound super spiritual, but I think it is, is I'm, um, I work out really regularly with a couple of really good friends that I've had all the way since college and even going back to grade school. Um, and so there's kind of a twofold benefit there. I think, you know, being healthy physically is, is huge for our mental health and even our spiritual health insofar as we, you know, can. And then also just those lasting friendships that I've had for years. I think so many pastors, so many just adults just lack friends, yeah, you know, really good. good friends. Um, so you can just tell anything to, and you can be completely honest with and so that's a part of my ritual as well and, and just like you know some of the other things I mentioned I think it's helpful for just spiritual and emotional um, health now I'll say amen to that I mean folks that listen and you know I, I'm a co I coach uh, pastors I actually coach even business owners and such and one of the things that I actually try to do is like I consider food and exercise a means of grace because sometimes I mean you can just be hungry and be in a really yeah. bad mood or something. You're having a spiritual problem. You just need to eat something healthy or mm -hmm. get enough sleep. And so I, I love that you just said that. So I think that's just a great witness. And then I have another friend that thinks CrossFit is like almost like going to church because you get these really committed people that support you. So, I mean, it's really interesting, right? And and for those who are listening, there's there's real wisdom in what Josh just yeah. said, even if you want to learn how to do evangelism in some way, get in some some kind of exercise group and uh, just uh, yeah. you'll, you'll find people that are passionate and they're pretty certain about stuff too sometimes, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't want to say it was, it actually, I actually do do CrossFit. I didn't want to say the word because I didn't want people to think I was in a cult or something like that. But it, actually, <laughs> Well, you actually are now. Now we have to have another. To be fully now. honest, it actually is that. But oh, that's so funny. I, was, <laughs> I didn't mean to smoke yet. I was just talking to one of my friends. He loves. He, he says CrossFit is so cool. You won't believe the people I get to hang around with. And so I mean that's really awesome. So well, I'm, I'm happy. I mean that's good. That's such a great model for everybody. Um, what are two or three books that have really helped you uh, spiritually? Uh, and I guess on yeah. a personal level, as what we've been thinking about. If I look back in my life, uh, the book that made me wanted to become a scholar but in the service of the church was N.T. Wright's Jesus and the Victory of God. Oh, yeah, that's a good book. Um, and even if I come to disagree with him on this or that, the thing I loved about that book was that it was incredibly rigorous academically, but his writing is so readable and just elegant in certain ways. But some of the other things I really liked about it was it was committed to scripture, but at the same time, it was, it was daring in certain ways. It was not afraid to sort of question um, established sort of assumptions about this or that with regard to Christ, but not in a way that was trying to sort of tear down the biblical or orthodox sort of faith, but actually questioning them on the basis of the text of scripture, you know? And so it was a, a realization that like, oh, you can, you can write well in a way that's like enjoyable to read and also be rigorous and you can be orthodox without being sort of 
boring or you know you can still raise you can question um presuppositions or assumptions in, in a way that's actually faithful so that was a big one for me that just really i mean i was probably in seminary at the time and i'm not a new testament scholar that's not my field per se but it was really um impactful for me you know i love c.s lewis uh, i interact a little bit with uh, the great divorce as the last chapter of of this perhaps book um lots of other people uh, i could cite as well but those are those are a couple early on that were um impactful i got a when i was in grad school uh, the complete short stories of Flannery O'Connor and uh, stuff yeah. early on kind of trying to think about how can I weave fiction into theology and preaching. And uh, so that was a kind of formative uh, text as well. That's good. Where can folks find out more about you, Josh? Well, I'm on, uh, I have a, a blog that I occasionally update <laughs> less, less frequently with now that we have four kids and we've got books coming out, but so they can go to Joshua It's just my name, J O S H U A M C N A L L.com. And I host a, a podcast through our university. It's my podcast, but it's sponsored by Oklahoma Wesleyan where I work and that's called outpost theology. Um, and we interview Bible scholars and pastors and theologians kind of at the intersection of theology, culture, and the church. Uh, I'm on Facebook, and uh, I know I'm supposed to probably do better at some of the marketing things, but uh, who has who has time for all that? But those are a couple of places where they can folks can find me. Thank you. And, as, and uh, Josh's book, Perhaps Reclaiming the Space Between Doubt and Dogmatism is available now from InterVarsity on Amazon and I guess probably wherever you buy your Christian books. And so uh, I want to thank you, Josh, for being my guest today. I'm super grateful. Always whenever I meet somebody who's given their life to, to the Lord and the Lord's work and to do the, the hard thinking and all the reading and things that go in there, I'm just super grateful. I've been blessed by your presence today. I know your students, as you start a new semester, are going to really enjoy having you. So I'm super grateful that you've been my guest and it's been a pleasure to have you today. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. And everybody, thanks for listening all the way to the end of this week's episode. And until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be a voice of hope in the world. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. If you found this episode helpful, would you share it with your friends or with your social media network? And I would be truly grateful if you would leave a review wherever you found this, and that will help other people to find interviews like this. If you're interested in any of the resources that were mentioned, they're all in the show notes. And I would also encourage you, if you're interested, to check out my latest book, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence Can Change Your Life. It's now available via Paraclete Press. You can check it out on Amazon. That's also in the show notes. If you would be interested in learning a little more about Centering Prayer, you can sign up for my email and I'll send you a newsletter. I'm not a spammer. I send something out every once in a while about Centering Prayer that might help you to develop a deeper practice. You can go to centeringprayerbook.com and sign up for those updates. If you have any comments or questions about the show or suggestions for guests, email me directly, deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next week on the next episode.